Hi, welcome everyone to this podcast. I'm calling it Leave a Message, and it's my intention to to record the conversations between us, between friends, between people having this human experience. And a lot of it's going to be about recovery. A lot of it's going to be about healing. A lot of it's going to be golden oldies, stories from the past, and we'll just see where it goes just for fun. So Janet is with me today. Janet and I have a lifelong, it feels like lifelong relationship. And there's just so much ground to cover in our personal relationship that I want to start with. Janet, and maybe it might always be Janet. It (laughs) might just be us talking for eternity. We don't know. So we're just trying to start, I'm trying to start here and This relationship is obviously very profound for me personally. We've been friends for 155 years. Yeah, we're going to have to do the math. It's a long time. Mm -hmm. We are quite (laughs) (laughs) middle-aged. Full disclosure, we live together. We work together. Mm -hmm. We are what you would call lifers. We share so much about our recovery and have historically since mm-hmm. whenever, the early 90s, I want to say, mm-hmm. was our first attempts, and but we knew each other before that. So maybe we should just start out like at the beginning of our relationship and just see how much we can cover in the first hour and go from there. I think it's going to be really fun. I think it's going to be a really fun reflection and journey and what an interesting way to reflect on ourselves, personal growth and our relationship. And, you know, our kids are intertwined and our whole everything is just so, so intertwined. So I think, you know, when I was putting together some sort of general questions that I felt like I wanted to ask people here, my first question was, how would you describe yourself? I would describe myself as or like most primarily is like a student. Mm. Not a, I'm not in school. I'm not registered anywhere. I haven't been in school in several, (laughs) I want to say decades, but I feel like I am like a in perpetual school. I'm a, I'm a student of spiritual pathways. I'm a student of psychology. I'm a student of recovery of like how best to serve our community in general and and people specific people more specifically I'm I read like a lot of books I listen to a lot of podcasts and audiobooks I am I'm like the kind of person that like and my son's this way too like just hits the random article on wikipedia like that is entertaining to me I call I sometimes call it tweakopedia where you just like get into a, I just get onto a subject and I just hit all the links associated with that subject and just rabbit hole on it. So I have like a lot of little bits of different schools of thinking and religious ideas. And I've just kind of made it into like an amalgam of stuff that works for me. And I'm, I am lucky enough to work with a lot of women in recovery and and I'm always kind of learn trying to learn or expand like how to best be useful how to best be 
helpful to people who are like forging new pathways, like neural pathways, like life pathways, like spiritual pathways, right? Just how to be as best I can, like a Sherpa to help people who are just starting out or who are struggling with things that I've already struggled with. So I, I would, that would be my first term would be a student. And my, I mean, I'm a, I'm a mom. I have been a good mom and I've been a shitty mom. I have been a wife before. I'm no longer a wife. I've been, you know, I have a job that's really important to me and really satisfies me on kind of professional, personal levels. It's really challenging. And, and I think quite often I think of myself as a person who is just constantly trying to practice redemption. You know, I've had periods of my life that have been very bad. I've been a bad person. I've been a, I mean, right. Not a bad person, a sick person, but I've done bad things, right? Like I have done such as no, we'll get into that later. (laughs) (laughs) I've done things I am not proud of. And I have, you know, parented in a way that I'm not proud of. And I have been an employee and a daughter and a sister and a friend in ways I'm not proud of. And I'm, kind of constantly trying to, I mean, I feel like everybody's birthright is redemption, right? Like that I don't, I don't actually have anything to prove to God, but I feel like I want to set right the things that I've done. And, and a lot of times it feels like that might be a lifelong thing. Right. So I think those will, those, that feels like a pretty good capture of me. Yeah, I feel like that too. And I also, you know, as far as you being a student, I mean, I reap the rewards of that because I get all this information and I don't have to ever go get it. (laughs) No, you don't have to do the Tweakopedia. Yeah, right. (laughs) Yeah, that's incredible. And I was, I was thinking about, I mean, it's, it's such a, it's such a broad question that I think that people, it just, there's so much leeway to answer in so many different, yeah, so many yeah, different it's, ways. It's some. It's an interesting thing too because it's not something I would ask myself. Yeah, no, it's an interesting thing to ask yourself though. Yeah, and uh, and it's you know so often we ask people, oh, "What do you do for a living?" or "How long have you lived in Seattle?" or "How long have you been with this person?" or "How long have you been sober?" Yeah. So, do you? I mean, I see you in a couple different ways, you know, to expand on your vision of of yourself. I really see you as a seeker and healer and for yourself, you know, for yourself, as well as sharing all that wealth with everyone around you, which is makes you just a very charismatic and very magnetic person. And it's been, you know, I feel like so interesting and fun to be at this place in our lives, in our friendship, where we've been friends a really long time, and now we're more like integrated and intertwined than we ever have been. And mm-hmm. it's a wild ride. Yeah. So should we talk about how like our first exposure to each other as people, like <laughs> where where we were in our life at that time? What was yeah, I on? think you might remember it a little bit better than I do, because there were a <laughs> lot of people in and out of my apartment at that time. Why was that? Well, I was, (laughs) I mean, let's put it, the date is probably like 1989-ish, probably. Yeah. I was, I mean, the glamorous way to say it, and the way that I most usually say it, is that I was a drug dealer in Seattle. Entrepreneur. I was an entrepreneur, 
the the probably more accurate way to say it is I was a drug mule, right? <laughs> like well, it was I mean, I definitely did a lot of the exchanges, but I wasn't the person who was like funding anything or I was like a courier. I was like a corner kid, basically. You weren't reaping the huge financial rewards of no, someone higher up no. on the food chain. Of no, that I wasn't living much higher than the people that I was selling it to. So I had a, let's see if I can remember, 880 square foot apartment on <laughs> what what is known in Seattle as Pill Hill, which is the hos- the hill where all the hospitals are. It's It's kind of connected to... Capitol Hill, which is a, you know, everybody, I don't know who knows anything about Seattle knows about Capitol Hill. Well, they do now, especially they after now. whatever. But yeah, it's also, but, yeah. but Pill Hill is, is like in between downtown and Capitol Hill. So very urban yeah. and very yeah, yeah, gritty. Yeah, very urban. Yeah, very gritty. Conveniently uh, right across the street from what was King County Detox at the time <laughs> where I went 14 times in one year. <laughs> I left AMA every time I went. They told me that if they could say no to me, they would. So I I lived there. I was a like a drug courier for a person that lived in Belltown. I, I'm not sure like which people in our story, which of them are still alive, which of them might listen to podcasts, which right. of them might like are still involved in shady shit. So I'm yeah. probably like sure. You know, I've like not specifically not Googled some of these people because I don't want to know. Right. Right. So were they scary? Were they scary people or they were just like you, but just higher up on the food chain? They were scary people. I mean, you know, I think as we see it now, mental health and substance use disorder have always been very tied together. Right. Like they're often like everybody's in some shade of gray of all of those things. And so. The person that I worked with, it was like the person in charge of it was like probably somewhere in the blacker shades of gray, right? In some of those areas. And so it wasn't scary to me at the time, but I I will say that like not much was scary to me at the time, right? I think it's like I had that naivete of, of like thinking I was invincible or thinking like bad things don't happen to me except that they like were constantly happening to me, but I didn't think that, I mean, I just thought (laughs) like that was kind of how, right. (laughs) That that was kind of life. Right. So I was, uh, you know, low level drug dealer in Capitol Hill in the early, late eighties, early nineties. My, my original sober date was 1991. So it's somewhere in that time period. Yeah. I think mine was 91 or 92. Yeah. So you were, Essentially, like the people that I was buying from at that time were just people like me and they were selling to support their own habit, essentially. So, yeah, I was not making like I wasn't even able to like buy groceries with my profits. Right. It was all going into habits of people like me or people around me. Sure. So nobody was getting rich. So that's how we didn't, I don't even, I wouldn't even say that we technically really met, but that's how we crossed paths because I was terrified of you. <laughs> I would essentially send my boyfriend to buy drugs from you. And for whatever reason, when I went to go buy, I often bought from your boyfriend. Yeah, so we yeah. were in the same very close orbit, but not necessarily a ton of exposure until the day I walked into 
an NA meeting mm-hmm. and you were the secretary of the meeting and I was just flabbergasted. Yeah. Like two two different worlds that shouldn't collide. Yeah. Just like, what is she doing here? And then, you know, as much as I didn't want to admit it, I had that like, oh, well, it's okay for me to be here then if she's here. Yeah. Like it immediately put me at ease a little bit. But can you talk about what got you from point, you know, from the... Yeah. Yeah, it was such a weird time. So said boyfriend and I, let's call him. We need to come up with a nickname for him. Let's call him. He often wore a beanie. So let's call him Beanie. (laughs) Beanie baby. Beanie baby. So he and I. King baby. King 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 baby. baby. The first of many king babies that we encounter in our story. King baby. Yeah. So king baby and I were working for this cat and right every bit of profit or payment that we did went to building a robust and terrifying drug habit that (laughs) man I tried for I I honestly don't think that any time in my career as someone who has been what we call strung out on I mean and in Seattle in the late 80s early 90s all black tar heroin right so strung out on heroin from the moment I think I realized that I had a, a addiction like a physical addiction to heroin, I was trying to get off, right? Like I was always trying to get off, maybe not quit forever, but I never really wanted a habit. And so I was always, I mean, and what that did to me is, I mean, it put me in positions where I was going to detox every other weekend, right? Mm -hmm. I always wanted to just get, I didn't want to have a habit. What day, what day did you usually bail on detox? Day three. Day three. Yeah. By day the three. by noon of day three. Right. I think you you <laughs> had to like go. Yeah, I have to go. And and plus, like that's when living across the street from detox doesn't work for you because I could see my apartment. And I'm <laughs> like, well, there's drugs right there. <laughs> right. <laughs> so so not exactly yeah. a setup for success no, in any type it wasn't. of way. Did you guys alternate? Did you and Beanie Baby alternate kind of going to detox yeah. and selling? And-, yeah. and here's the romantic part of the story of a story with very little romance. I would write signs on on big <laughs> sheets of paper and hold them up outside of the detox. Like Come I was in, me. yeah, like say anything holding the radio. I'm like holding a sign. <laughs> And he's nodded out. He's not looking out there. No, I was outside. He was inside. Oh, he's probably like passed out on clonidine, like feeling like shit. And I'm like puking up the Kool-Aid. You can do it. You can do it. (laughs) You can do it. I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to do it. But every time I went, I really thought I was going to stay the whole time. Like I really thought I did. I always really wanted to be not have a habit. There's just something that's like very shackling about having a habit. And by then I had already like, you know, I had lost out on college plans that I was planning to do. I, I, you know, I wanted to go to the school of design in New York and I had plan, you know, I had plans. I wasn't, I didn't want to just be where I was. And did you have tangible, did you have a tangible like sense of grief over not fulfilling that part of your plan? I mean, I think, I think I was young enough then so beanie baby and i started going out when (laughs) we all lived in this it was supposed to be like a recording studio slash artist space in belltown and there was like lots of bands that practiced there and lots of artists that painted there and 
and I kind of like got got in with that group of guys and I thought like that was going to be how I was going to be this artist that I always wanted to be like a mini little factory a mini little factory in Seattle yeah and it was like a very cool time in Seattle lots of lots of musicians were getting famous and maybe not quite yet but like that was in the air like things were starting to happen there and it was like I mean what what happened is every person that was involved in that space ended up with a gigantic addiction problem so nobody got launched from that place right but that was always that was kind of in the air like we thought we were doing art there we were doing music there like it seemed like a place like a like a incubator for some things to happen and well and based on that model when you think about the factory you know, anything about Andy Warhol and the Velvet Underground yeah. and all the stuff that yeah, was going yeah. on at that time. Like those people did achieve creative success in yeah. a com- you know, in a, you know, compromised situation as far as like using drugs. So it's yeah. not that far outside the realm of possibility that I mean, and and that did happen in Seattle too, right? Like sure. somehow in the midst of, I mean, there were times in Seattle where I feel like everyone I knew ha- was addicted to heroin. Everyone I knew was so. I don't know if that says something about Seattle or something about me, but that <laughs> was the scene, right? Yeah. And so even in despite all that, like some of the people who had these crushing drug problems or maybe just like episodic use where they were using at the time, like people were getting, like things were happening. People were making moves and getting noticed and record labels and people that I sold drugs to were like getting famous. They could still function at yeah. that point, they could still function enough to pull off the shows right. and tours and whatever. Yeah, right. some could, some couldn't, I guess. Some, and, right, right. And so it didn't feel like I was losing out on anything by not going to to design school. Or I mean, and I did end up going to the Art Institute of Seattle. And so it's like things were, I was also a stripper. At, like I, I had three jobs. I was a student at the Art Institute. I was a stripper. And I was a drug dealer, well, low-level drug dealer. So Beanie Baby, one job, he was in a band, (laughs) (laughs) one job. He was also the drug dealer too, but it seemed like I did a lot of the hustling for that. But so it didn't seem like I was losing anything much, but I just always, I just never really liked, I don't like the feeling now. I don't like feeling tied down. I don't like feeling shackled. I don't like feeling like, well, if I wanted to leave town right now, I couldn't. And that was just the state of my life all the time. I could never leave town. Yeah, I couldn't really, you you know, there's not a day off when you have to get well every morning. Right. So New York, New York was pretty far away at that point. Like, how could you? New York was very far away. And I I had had like, but I think I was 19 when I moved to San Francisco for a year or something like that, because I wanted to get clean. I wanted to get sober. I wanted to get clean. Nowadays, looking back, like moving to the Tenderloin in San Francisco probably isn't the (laughs) place most people would pick to get clean. Pretty much the opposite. And not shockingly, did not get clean, right? Did not. I had a problem with a different drug that lasted a long time and got very weird. Moved back to Seattle in a different kind of epic failure. So you just, so you thought that in San Francisco, like as long as I don't use heroin, I'm okay. I'll use something else. And yeah. Yeah, I I literally hitchhiked to San Francisco with two other girls. I think I had maybe $18 in my pocket when we got there. And we used it to buy a pint of Jim Beam. 
<laughs> I, I, I didn't know anybody there. I, you know, was not going to use heroin anymore. I was done with it. The girls that I was with were very anti-heroin. And so I thought that was probably a pretty good model. I would probably do okay. And I went to San Francisco and, you know, by day three at, on at probably right around noon, I was like, well, this is going to have to change. I'm going to have to find some, some heroin. And in Seattle, we called heroin dope. And so when I went to go shoulder tap and try to find dope in San Francisco, what I ended up buying was meth because they call Oof. meth dope. Oh. So then I'm like, okay, I guess I do meth now. So that lasted <laughs> somewhere around a year. I came back to Seattle with a psychopathic boyfriend and probably less money than when I started. So we can deduce that if you perhaps, I mean, just speculation just for fun, like if you would have gone to New York... It oh, would have yeah. probably turned out the same in New York as oh, well, yeah. like school, but using and whatever. Yeah. There's... I mean, that's what they say, right? No matter where you go, there you are. Like I, yeah. I'm there's, I can't do a geographical cure for what's happening in my internal world. Right. right? Like I, there's nowhere else I can go. I'm where I'm with me wherever I go. And so, but I always wanted to be clean. Like I, or maybe not clean, but I just didn't want to have a habit. So well, it starts to get scary too when your tolerance is getting so high. And that's when you're what dealing. Happened. Yeah, that's, that's what, what happens when you're dealing. Your tolerance gets so high because it's around so much, and then that's what's scary. You can't get enough in. No, right. It's just I not- couldn't get enough in. I couldn't get enough in. And then what happened is some circumstances went a little bit rough. Right, like the person that I was the courier for got busted oh and so right you go from oh i have an endless supply basically to like i'm hustling all day long and i'm sick i'm sick all day long right mm. if you can't ever catch up to what your tolerance is it's just like that's the that's hell to me that and that just was hell and so it's just terror it's just the terror of waiting to get sick you know yeah. that you're going to be debilitated and you have to make a move before you're debilitated to yeah. prevent the- and like phase one of opiate withdrawal is i'm just really tired and i want to lay down right i just mm. want to lay d- i'm just like deeply bone tired and I, I, that's just the state that i w- was in because i could never really i'm not as far as feeling like euphoric or like happy or everything's going to be okay. I hadn't, I didn't have that. I couldn't get there. So it was like a terrible few weeks and Beanie Baby and I ended up at- You guys were just trying to buy dope from other people, but you didn't have any income. And so really having to- Right, right. And so you're like calling in fronts, right? Like, oh, you owe me from six months ago. I need that money now. Or like, I've fronted you. You've got to front me. Right. You had some clout, yeah. some credibility in that yeah. world because you were the yeah. dope dealers on Capitol but Hill. But it happens to every drug dealer, right? Like yeah. I've seen it happen to everyone of like just like peaks and valleys of like you got it going on and then you don't. And when you don't, it's like that's when shit gets super real, right? Like yeah. that's when you realize how much $700 actually is, right? Like yeah. it's an incredible amount of money to burn through every day. So we ended up at, at, do you remember when there was a hospital at Northgate? Yeah, I do. Yeah, it was yeah. like above a movie theater or something. Like it was a very strange hospital. Well, they were doing rapid detox there. Oh, which right. Which was like a very early, late, 80, late 80s, early 90s treatment modality where they would knock you out on propofol barbiturates. or something. Oh, yeah, yeah, barbiturates. Like I think we got secondol or something. Nice. And then they would like just give you a big bolus of narcan 
mm-hmm. you would kick in, I think they said like 24, 36 hours, you would sure. do just like all the opiates would be out of your system and they would just like keep you asleep. The only thing I remember out of that experience was that it was fuck. It was terrible. Like I felt so sick and it's like, I don't care how knocked out you are. Even like the dreams that I was having was all, were all terrifying. Like it was terrifying, terrible. They can't, I mean, so you're sedated, but it's not like general anesthetic. You're just like hardcore sedated. Right, right. Okay. Yeah. You're, I mean, you're sleeping ish, right? But it's like that weird, like, like you feel like maybe passed out. Right, right. Yeah, sweating, twitching, moaning, groaning, sweating. <laughs> yeah. Everything but I, what smells I remember terrible. Is, yeah, so right, you're in that state. And then I remember the first meal that they delivered to my hospital room, because this was a hospital room. I think it cost us $1,500 each to do it. We were there for, I think, five days. So they brought the first meal that I remember being even able to think about eating was I lifted the hospital lid and it was a whole trout. Like the last thing you would want to eat, a fish head. There was a fish head on the, like a fish head, a tail, all the fins, and it was just like baked or something. It was very bizarre. So, definitely uh, not junkies running that place. Like, not people with any experience having gone through this personally. But also, like, nowadays, a a whole fish seems kind of weirdly bougie for (laughs) hospital food. Like, what did you think this was like? Who cooked the fish? Is just some mm. lady in a hairnet cooking whole fish? An entire very trout. bizarre. Yeah, strange. So that's the only. I mean, I just remember how terrible it was. I remember Beanie Baby in the room next to me, and he was in a bad mood. And <laughs> and then we left, and we were on like Trexan was the name of the drug that they yeah. would give you, and it was like an opiate blocker. Very early. Yeah, I remember exactly what they look like. They look like hexagons. Or like stop signs, they're orange. So you take those every day or like twice a week or three times a week or something, and it would block you. So we knew like we couldn't get opiates. We knew we were were blocked from opiates. But we did. I got out of that hospital and we went on a cocaine run for, I don't know, two weeks or something. Yes. And that got like immediately scary. People who just like only do cocaine, like psych like cocaine psychosis is very terrifying. And that always just happened to me instantly. I used to, I say, uh, the way I think of it now is I, I don't get high, I get paranoid. Yeah. And so I was like a peeper, right? Like I'm always looking out the peephole or the (laughs) shades or whatever, just standing like still for three hours. And, and we signed up for a, it's called the Trexan program, which is <laughs> yeah. another w- p- place we ran across paths. Yes, that's true. I always forget mm-hmm. about that. I remember. Yes, yes, yes. That was a yep. big early, early days of of yep. using opiate blockers as a treatment modality or medically assisted, yeah. what we call it now. Yeah. 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 We were both there and we went to NA. We started going to NA meetings. So that was like March who of gave 91. You, who gave you that idea? NA? Yeah. How did you, how did you, how did the 12 step ecosystem come into your, Uh, because I knew, I mean, I knew. So when I was like 17, I was hanging around with this group of guys that were all, you know, 10 years older than me at the time or something. Mm -hmm. And they had had a little bit more advanced drug problems than I did at 17. And one of them 
got sober, I think in like maybe 89. Mm. And, and, you know, I grew up in the kind of the punk rock scene in Seattle and there was a man that I had a crush on. He was a long-term boyfriend of a friend of mine. And I, I had the hugest crush on him and his mom was in AA and he was definitely an alcoholic at an early age, alcoholic. And he would go to AA meetings, sometimes with his mom, sometimes without his mom. He brought me to a few. Like, oh, wow. I'd always, I'd always kind of knew about it. I was like, well, that's a thing for later, I think is kind of how huh. I thought of it. It's like, that's available. Yeah, right. Yeah, but the, but the guys that I was hanging out with that were older than me, one of them got sober, I think, in like 1988. Hmm. And... And he was really bad. Like he was really bad. I knew him. I watched his progression from the time I was 20, you know, 17 till the time I was 23 or whatever. I watched how bad that guy got and he got real bad. So did it make you feel like how I felt when I saw you in my first meeting of just like, oh, I feel at home here. Like it's okay for me to be here because that person's here. Yeah. I mean, I I think what I thought of of any 12 step program is like, it was mostly for old people. Yeah. yeah. Cause you see it on TV or something. Yeah. It was just such a mis. I don't remember really having any much exposure to it before I started going. So it's always interesting yeah. to find out like, what was your first even? Yeah. Just yeah. Brush I thought it was with. just for old people or maybe for like skid row people. Right. Like it, yeah. it was like, you just kind of went there to talk about alcohol or what, or like right. how you're just like managing not to drink or whatever. And it was like, you smoked a bunch of cigarettes and I wasn't quite sure how support communities, like what their function was even. Sure. And so I like, you know, I always kind of knew it was a place that was an option at some point, if ever I was old and wanted to talk about drinking. <laughs> I was going to smoke there. cigarettes in a church basement and drink coffee. Yeah, right. But then I saw people that were, that were, you know, at least in my age range, like going and like, I watched, I could see their life could be different. Like all of a sudden they weren't where we were, right? Like you're not kind of on the corner anymore. Like you're somewhere else. And I didn't really know how to get from the corner to anywhere else. Right. I did. Mm -hmm. I, I mean, I suppose on some other, some other hour, we'll talk about our families of origin. Right. But I was not, I was not raised in a family where being like especially motivated to succeed was like a a part of the culture right like sure so I didn't really I didn't at least have any autonomy or agency or I didn't really know how people got off the corner right like how do you how does like upward mobility happen I don't I didn't know how to do it and so I watched this specifically one person and I had see, I had used with him. I saw him. I knew how bad it was for him. I'd actually like, you know, I was almost murdered in front of his apartment. And when I hit the door for him to answer the door, he was so fucked up on drugs that he was scared to answer the door because he thought I was the cops. Um, <laughs> like, like bad scene. Yeah. And and then he was eventually homeless and couldn't put his shoes on because his feet were so swollen. Right. Like. Bad, bad and I and he got he went to AA and got better and and I think too like I went to some NA meetings figuring it was going to be a smoky room of old men and it was like there were people that seemed cool yeah right there were people that like oh wow that guy I think I've seen his band play before or that guy right. like, and they seemed yeah they seemed like sh- shiny they seemed yeah. 
hydrated. Happy, right? Yeah. Hydrated. <laughs> yeah. As simple as that, right? Yeah. It seemed like maybe they didn't have a headache, right? Like they seemed and how like- old were we? How, I mean, I'm a little older than you, but how old were you yeah. at that time in 91? In that, so born in 68. So 23, 22 and a half. Hmm. Something like that. Young, yeah. right? Young, yeah. young yeah, to yeah. have such a like pretty acute acute experience. Yeah. 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 Pretty young. So 22 and a half or so. And we ended up in NA and the meeting that I was the secretary of was called Dr. Clean at group health hospital. Dr. Clean. I was the secretary mm-hmm. there. And that meeting was like very, it was a lot of young people. Mm-hmm. A lot of young people that had like tattoos and, you know, we smoked cigarettes outside, you know, it was like pretty cool. It was like a total like meat factory, right? Like there was a lot of, <laughs> you know, just depravity, but not of the drug kind. Right. So sure. Everybody's got to get their endorphins cool. somewhere. You got to squeeze yeah, yeah. your endorphins yeah, out of somebody. Yeah. yeah. Especially if you're coming in with very few, right? Yeah. Like. But it, I mean, it, that was actually a really fun time. Yeah. Right. It was really fun. And I mean, our core group, like we built really a, our core group of people that we still know to this day from yeah. that particular entrance into. Yep. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. It was a fun time. Lifelong friends. Mm-hmm. Right. Like that was like a, the, a rich soil for some really long term friendships to be grown from. Yeah. And when the, you know, when some of the the promises start to come true and just feeling that relief of like you're talking about, just like the shackled the mm-hmm. bondage of being imprisoned oh, yeah. by addiction and just feeling a little bit of liberation and freedom from that and being yeah. a young person. And it was an exciting time in Seattle and yeah. it just seemed like the world just yeah. gave you a hug and opened back up. I mean, I was literally like, I was literally used to burning $500 a day, right? Just lighting it on fire. Yeah. And that, and and then like $20 got you, you could go to a show, you could buy a pack of cigarettes, you could get a, <laughs> a Americano yeah. and like- uh, And maybe a t-shirt at the show. Yeah, Maybe yeah, a t-shirt, right, right. right? Like 20 yeah. bucks would go, that was a whole night. So yeah. like, it felt like, like I've won a lottery of sorts, right? Like I'm, I'm, and, and also my probably like the feeling that I try to avoid the most still to this day, the feeling that I try to avoid the most is feeling like I've disappointed people. Hmm. That, that is my kryptonite, man. I cannot, I hate that feeling more than anything. And that was just the story of my life, right? I was just, I mean, I feel like I disappointed my mom to her bone marrow, right? Like just could not meet her standards. I, you know, couldn't keep a job. I couldn't, I burned through friendships. I burned through relationships. Like I just couldn't, as much as I hate the term, I just couldn't show up for people. I couldn't be the thing that people expected me to be. Mm -hmm. And then I got a job, you know, I, I got a job. I got. I got friends. I could like, I owned a car and I don't think I ever really was a legal driver for, I can tell I had kids, man. I <laughs> that don't, sounds that, familiar to me. Yeah. That sounds <laughs> that, familiar to like, me. Like either my tabs were expired or my license was expired <laughs> or my registration was lost or like, I didn't have insurance. Like I could never get them all going at the same time. Troublesome. Let me ask you this. 
How, how long did you and Beanie Baby stay together then after you started going to 12 Step? Not very long. Not very hmm. long. I remember he wrote a song about me and it was oh. not a ni- nice song about me. And oh. I remember that. What was it called? It's called Janie Janie, I think. <laughs> because also that was the name that I danced under. Janie? So, yeah. So, I, yeah. It wasn't a nice song. I remember I, you know, when when you're like shackled to someone, I don't fault him, man. We were shackled sure. together. We were, yeah. we didn't, I don't even think we necessarily sort of necessity. Really liked each other. Yeah. It was out of necessity, right? Mm-hmm. Like you just can't really manage that life on your own. You sort of have to have a partner. And every time I've been like deeply strung out, I have a partner and generally I don't like them very much, but, <laughs> but they're like, yeah, the qualifications are, Right. What? Yeah. Right. Willingness. Willingness to like do the shit that I do or like assist. So, I mean, we got clean. We were both in that Trexan program together. They had to put us in different groups because obviously, but I think about how those therap- those counselors had to divide the groups because everyone was sleeping with everyone or living with them <laughs> the shell or game. were exes yeah. with them. Right? <laughs> So they probably had their hands full with us, but he started, he, I mean, we both like started feeling ourselves a little bit in when we got sober, right. Of like, Oh, wow. I don't, I'm not obligated to be with you who doesn't like me. Right. Like who wants to be with someone that doesn't even like them. So he started feeling himself and he started dating around. And so well, plus I. I would imagine, yeah, I was going to say, like, you're both young, attractive, cool people. You're going to start getting attention from other yeah, yeah, people yeah. and start to branch out and, yeah, out, outgrow the situation quickly. Sure. Yeah. And then so he moved out of the 880 square foot apartment. And the person that was at both of the births of our sons, who we need a nickname for, mm-hmm. moved in. Oh, right. Wow. Remember, we lived there together. Oh, yeah, yeah. And that must be how I met her. I might have met, must have met her through you. Yeah. Yeah. I was paying the whole rent. Which was, I wonder how much it was. Yeah, I think it was. Like 400. I mean, it was, yeah, I think it was somewhere around 500 bucks. Yeah. <laughs> it was a big apartment. Too. It was. Yeah, it was, it was cute. Big. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was cute. It was on the ground floor too, which was great as a drug dealer, but it was not great. Scary as a single person. It was woman. scary as yeah. a single person because it had been a place where you could buy drugs for years. Yeah. And so for at least a year afterwards, people would knock on my window. Like just mm-hmm. people who remembered yeah. from a long <laughs> yeah. time ago or whatever, or just like, maybe she's still there. Maybe it's still a place where you can buy drugs. But yeah, she moved in. And she, I mean, she, I think she had a little bit more time than I did, but we were both pretty new. Did you meet her in NA? Mm-hmm. Oh, okay. All right. Um, that Yeah. That rings true. Yeah. Yeah. Because, you know, when, I mean, you meet people and you become like, oh, you're like, it's like trauma bonding or something. Sure. Like you're yeah. like best friends. Yeah. yeah. Divulge so, too much information right off the bat. Oh, yeah. And then, oh, oh, yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. And, and of course that like breakup was terrible right yeah like, we probably didn't talk to each other much after that because it's like the h- hotter you go in the hotter you go out <laughs> <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> slow and steady is not a consideration and no. newly newly no. sober relationships no. it's just like life on fire man we're just like yeah. It seems like a lot happens in a short amount of time oh my also. god like looking mm-hmm. back at the 80s and 90s it seems like 
you know, I'll think of a year and it seems like it should have been five years, but so much mm-hmm. happened in just such a short, just like that development and growth and learning yeah, yeah. It just happens yeah. at such a rapid pace. I wonder if that happens for all people at that age or yeah. if it is just a, I mean, I don't think so. Not to say that there's anything that was particularly special or fabulous about what we were up to that, but it seemed like there was a lot of events and activities and like peak emotional states, right? Like yes. very happy, very sad. I mm-hmm. mean, and the, the other thing that was running through all this is people were dying, right? Like people that were friends kind of, of ours. I mean, it, it seems like more so later than at that time, or maybe well, I just wasn't so cognitively. I mean, Andy aware is like 89 or 90, right? right? Like so people no, were he wasn't 90. I don't well, maybe 88, 89, I bet. Andy mm-hmm. would. Yeah. He was the only he was the first and only person for a long time that was in my ecosystem that died from a heroin instance yeah. or yeah. you know. No, I had probably already had 25 or 35. Oh, okay. Right. Yeah, so maybe yeah. I just wasn't maybe just your level of exposure was a yeah. different based on your Yeah, yeah. Yeah. career path yeah right on um, my station on the corner i saw a yeah. little bit more of it uh pill yeah. hill yeah this is so fun janet i get to learn so much more about you <laughs> when you think you really know everything about someone it turns out there's just more there's more to know and i think this is going to be so fun to unpack and you know in the work we do now in our in our jobs and the work that we do in our yeah. in our healing stuff that we do and just getting to know what makes that person tick the person that we yeah. used to be you know to revisit that stuff yeah, is yeah. really fascinating from our perspective today as people yeah. in the twilight years of our life with a lot of you know days in recovery yeah. behind us yeah it's really fascinating. So let's, I mean, I didn't set a timer or anything, but I feel like we've been at this for probably 45 minutes or close to an hour. So let's put a pin in this. Yeah. Yeah. And then we'll just pick up where we left off yeah. and just continue chronologically. This is such a blast. Yeah. yeah Thank it'll you be fun. so much for doing this with me. I You're think, welcome. I think it's going to be a wild ride. I think it's going to be really fun. So we'll pick up, we'll pick up where we left off. Nice. Good job, us. Good job, us. We're documenting. <laughs> it just feels so satisfying to just to have some documentation. And yeah. God knows I'm never going to write a book. God knows yeah. I'm never going to, you know, well, I'll never say never. Who knows? But this just seems yeah. like such a fun, organic way yeah. to just to document our lives and our process and, and where we are today. So I yeah. thank you for your time. You're I know welcome. you're very thank busy. You. And I will see you in the kitchen. Yeah, in about two minutes. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> All right. See you next time. Okay. Bye. Bye.